psilocybin goes back up to a million years in the fossil record. That's amazing. And was probably something, if you looked at the stoned ape theory or hypothesis by Dennis and Terrence McKenna, maybe psilocybin was even part of what helped us evolve. Hello, this is Dr. Diva Nagula. Welcome to From Doctor to Patient, where our goal is to bring you topics of discussion that will educate you on the various healing modalities to help balance the mind, body, and spirit. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of From Doctor to Patient. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting Dr. Dan Engel. Dr. Dan Engel lectures and consults globally and is the medical director of the Revive Treatment Centers of America, as well as medical advisor to Onnit Labs, the True Rest Float Centers, and several international treatment centers using indigenous plant medicines for healing and recovery. He published his first book, The Concussion Repair Manual, in October of 2017, which has received praise from countless figures in the medical arena. He works with leaders in various industries, and his clinical practice combines functional medicine, integrative psychiatry, neurocognitive restoration, and peak performance methods. And Dr. Dan is also a friend and mentor to me, so I've been very excited for this podcast. So welcome, Dr. Dan. How are you today? Uh, great, Diva. Great to be with you, man. I've been really excited to, to do this <laughs> podcast for a while, so thanks for being on here today. Absolutely. Um, it's really interesting how your career has taken a change just like kind of mine has. And you initially started out as a practicing clinical psychiatrist, correct? Yes. After I finished my last fellowship, I did a couple of fellowships, one in forensics and one in child psych, and then ran an integrative psych clinic for about maybe two and a half years or so mm -hmm. until I was uh, going through a life transition and divorce and kind of re reflection on where my life was going in my practice. I was calling in something for sure. I didn't really know what I was calling in, but around that time I was introduced to an underground ayahuasca circle and that changed everything. <laughs> <laughs> where was this uh, circle of ayahuasca? Was it in the jungle? No, I hadn't met yet moved down to the jungle. Oh, okay. uh, this was up in the Pacific Northwest. And this kind of transformed your role as a healer, I would imagine. hundred percent. Wow. From a first person perspective, because I learned more about myself in one weekend with ayahuasca than I had in one decade of psychotherapy. And I was just amazed at the transformational experience that happened in a relatively short period of time and everything that I'd learned and gotten in touch with about myself. And, you know, our backgrounds in psychiatry and, and the study of the mind and that deep experience. And like Stan Groff says, you know, we, we need to have a felt sense or an experiential spirituality, not just an intellectual one. And the experience of that transcendental process was so transformative for my worldview that I knew I wanted to learn more about it. So fairly short order, closed my practice, uh, moved out of Portland down to an ashram for two years, and then eventually moved down to the jungle. 
to really just immerse deeply in the study of Amazonian shamanism. And, and you came out with so much to offer. I mean, you've changed your whole way of practicing medicine and, and also formulated different protocols for healing purposes. And so it's really interesting how it parallels what I've gone through. I mean, I had my first psychedelic experience just a year and a half ago. And in, in fact, I'm actually going to go to the jungle a month from now and experience my first ayahuasca ceremony. So, nice. yeah. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to that and seeing what kind of insight that I, I get. Some of the things that you're doing now is, is, is fantastic. And I'd love to just have you talk about some of the things you're doing in your realm in terms of helping others heal either mental and physical disease that they've been plagued for many years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, there's a wide tapestry or a list of things I'm currently involved in, and all of them are under the umbrella of transformational medicine. And what does it look like as we move into this next phase of evolutionary medical care, moving away from the, it's not even, let me clarify that. It's not just moving away from allopathic medicine because allopathic medicine has its place, right? When I dove off a pier, landed on a sandbar, broke my neck, I didn't go see my homeopath or my acupuncturist you know i went straight to the er (laughs) via ems to get stabilized wore a halo for three months and allopathic care has its place in the er in the or in triage medicine and acute care management we're really good at that but we're pretty lousy in allopathic care with preventative care and with chronic care and so every discipline has its sacred place at the table and so what does it look like as we evolve from allopathic care through functional medicine, now into transformational medicine, where we actually have tools to support people's conscious awakening experience into a more embodied presence of true self, full authenticity, growing in psychic empowerment, resiliency, and switched on to what our dharma is or what we're here to do, like the sacred work. And ideally, we do that in a way that teaches people how to fish and not just gives them fish. And that's essentially what these medicines do. They, they, they help heal the core issues that are stimulating the primary five psychiatric epidemics right now. Depression, anxiety, PTSD, addiction, and pain. And with these medicines, when they're used therapeutically in a really excellent container with supreme facilitation, the healing is transformational and it's extraordinarily effective and exponentially better than the standard of care. And just for our reference to our listeners, we're really referencing medicines as psychedelic medicines, right, Dan? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for that designation. And, and this kind of nomenclature is, is clear and it's important. And you and I were raised, our generation were raised with the whole war on drugs. And many of the medicines that I speak about in regards to the psychedelics were classified as drugs because of the popular media at the time. And the fact that in the early 70s, the Nixon administration was freaked out about everything that was going on in the Vietnam era and the revolution that was happening and was growing at a cultural level. And LSD was the poster child of the wrongness 
and the dangers of transcendental states. And truth be known, too, many people are using psychedelics recklessly and without reverence and without deep therapeutic intent. And, and that's not to say that recreational usage doesn't also have its place. But if we're talking about shifting the healing paradigm and expanding the trajectory of where medicine is going, we're speaking about medicines in a therapeutic context, not just the recreational. And so as all of this starts to expand, what we're going to see and what you and I are a part of and, and our field is growing into is establishing these protocols and right practices and new standards of care for efficacy and excellence with psychedelics in transformational process and putting those protocols into a clinical format where people actually have the opportunity to go to established clinics with trained providers and have a transformational process be worked through the arc of experience from soup to nuts, so to speak, right? So the onboarding preparation is excellent. The experience is excellent. And the integration on the other side is excellent. And when we have those protocols and those clinics established, we're going to see a complete revolution in mental health care. And I totally agree with you. And I'm looking forward to seeing this transformation occur in a legal sense as currently some of these psychedelic medicines are in clinical trials. And I believe MDMA, which isn't your traditional psychedelic medicine, but it has some properties of psychedelics and it is currently in phase three trials. And psilocybin, which is your magic mushroom, is currently, I believe, in phase two trials. So we should be seeing these medicines get through the categories of clinical trials and become legalized. I don't have a guesstimate, but do you have any kind of a timeline in terms of when you anticipate these two medicines becoming approved by the FDA for regular use? Well, I've heard friends that know Rick Doblin, the head of MAPS, who's supporting the MDMA phase three trials and the expanded access rollout of MDMA-supported psychotherapy that's happening now. It's just happening on a really small, slow scale. I've heard friends of Rick say that Rick's been saying that it's going to be legal in two years for about the last 10 years. <laughs> so, so the summary statement when you get asked is like, oh, there should be another couple of years. Oh, there should be another couple of years. I'm expecting that that's still about the, the case Same. because expanded access is already happening. And what they're doing is essentially proven safety, efficacy at scale as this gets rolled out into more and more centers. And when the feds see that it's done well and efficacy rates are excellent, then it's just going to make sense. It's a public health crisis right now. The amount of depression and PTSD, especially in the war veteran community. And I'm, I'm just amazed and stupefied that the VA system hasn't jumped on board because the amount of money they spend per veteran on PTSD-related treatments is astonishing. It's somewhere like $10 billion a year. You were telling me, I think it was you, or there's some research affirming that usage of psilocybin, or I'm sorry, it's MDMA with PTSD, there's like an astonishing like 80% like cure rate. Is that correct? Yeah, 83% cure rate in phase one trials. And in the phase two trials with using different therapeutics stacked on the MDMA, like how you're using it psychotherapeutically, whether you're using 
inter internal family systems or somatic experiencing or Hakomi or a variety of others may be down to like 68%. So if you just split the difference, you're in the mid 70s, right. which is five or six times better than the standard of care. And because that's for cure rate, that's right. not improvement rate. Right. That's people after two to three sessions with MDMA-supported psychotherapy no longer meeting criteria for PTSD at all, much less the standard of care, which is like 20 to 30% improvement rate. With what is the current CBT. standard of care? It's usually two things, CBT and psychopharmacology. Right. And that's usually polypharmacy. So two to three different psychiatric medications stacked on with cognitive behavioral therapy is maybe 20 to 35% improvement rate, kind of depending on the studies you look at and, and where they're doing it and how the CBT is being rolled out, et cetera. So it's orders of magnitude better. And so it, it's just going to make sense that this gets rolled out slowly so that the feds feel comfortable and that we build the standards of care and the excellence in the onboarding process for the clients and the clinicians. Like how do you train clinicians to do this work really well? Right. So all and of this is slowly getting implemented. And are we at a risk at all for ruining this second, so to speak, enlightenment that we're seeing right now? Because obviously <laughs> you, you kind of alluded to this awakening that happened in, you know, as we were growing up in the seventies and it kind of got crushed by the Nixon administration and I'm, I'm fearful that another incident might happen where there'll be a kibosh placed on psychedelics. I mean, I, I'm hoping that this isn't the case. Yeah, I, I kind of laugh at that question because it reminds me of what Stan Groff told Michael Mithofer. So Michael, Mitho, Michael and Annie Mithofer were the clinicians who ran phase one MDMA trials and that had those astonishing cure rates of 83% after two right. to three sessions. As phase two rolled out, and now that these trainings are happening, I went to a training with Michael and Annie. They're just amazing clinicians and super good humans. And uh, Michael left us at the end of that training with this quote from Stan, which is essentially Stan said, the data's good, we're doing good work, don't fuck it up. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, if you know Stan Groff, he's like legendary in the space. So to get it straight from the, the legend's mouth, so to speak, of, yes, we're on track and don't fuck it up because we don't want to mess up the trajectory that we're on. So that means everybody that's involved, be mindful. Yes. Play Important. smart. Don't do things super outside the box. Be a responsible not only for the clinicians being facilitators, but also for the clients being participants. Because once a participant, now as a participant, I have the opportunity, like if I'm receiving treatment as a participant, now I have the opportunity to be an ambassador and to actually be a spokesperson for the right use of these medicines and these technologies. So to encourage people to be using responsibly if they are using them on their own, because I think that's going to be, if something goes south, it's going to be a high profile person using something recreationally and something going wrong. Or it's going to be a clinician or a facilitator of a high profile person 
doing something therapeutically and something going wrong. And if that happens, then that's just going to give all the skeptics and the doubters more ammunition. Hey, Dr. Diva here. Thank you to all my listeners who supported my book and helped to make it a huge success. You all helped us hit number one in Barnes & Noble, number one in the categories of oncology, cancer, healing, and medical ebooks, and number 21 in all of the Kindle store. We also were able to achieve number three on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. If you haven't gotten your copy, you can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or booksamillion.com. Visit from doctortopatient.com to become part of our growing community of health and wellness aficionados and to learn more. There are so much underground usage of these medications and and they're in a spiritual setting, you know, in a circle or whatnot. And some of these facilitators and guides are just very cavalier. They're just placing people on medications without having an understanding of their own medications that they've been taking for many years without understanding the pharmacology of these medications. And that's what scares me. And I, I really fear that what you alluded to is that this utilization where someone that's a high profile person is going to have an issue where they're put on medicines that they shouldn't have been placed on because the, the, the guy didn't understand the pharmacology and the interactions and something lethal may happen. And that's what's imminent. I'm, I'm afraid of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hopefully the day, cause Chaos happens, right? There's a t- t- at least a 10% chaos factor in the universe. So even if you take care of all of the confounding variables, something may still go haywire. Right. And ideally, the data is so compelling and the numbers are so strong that it's going to well surpass and essentially overshadow any of the detriments that the benefits will Mm -hmm. show so much consistent positive effect when used well that from a cost benefit risk benefit kind of analysis it's so supremely high in the likelihood of benefit that we would be silly to not approve it right i mean we have so many side effects that are detrimental to people's health on a daily basis with uh, medications that have been approved by the big pharma. So, you know, if you look at it in that perspective, you know, you're going to have things that go south. But obviously with the benefit, the cost-benefit ratio and and the overall improvement in people's well-being, I mean, we're talking, you know, such a high percentage of of cure rate for PTSD. I mean, that's just, you don't see that with, with any medicines that are currently out there that are purported by big pharma. So um, that's just, it's kind of the way it is. Another thing that I wanted to discuss, most of my viewers are, or my listeners, I'm sorry, are really novice when it comes to psychedelics. And you have this really great tiered system that you often explain about how you should progress from one psychedelic to the next. And would you mind explaining that in a little bit of detail and kind of going over and reviewing what each medicine kind of does and you know what mm-hmm. the uh, requirements are before you advance to the next tier? Yeah, happy to talk about that. 
when I think of the psychedelics that are commonly discussed, researched, reported today, there are the big 10. And if we put those into a stratified hierarchy, then it's kind of like going into the gym. And some of my friends are just beasts in the gym. And to be honest, I haven't been in a gym in a long time. My workouts are varied and they're usually in nature, but they're not in a gym. So because I don't have experience in there and because most of those guys are huge compared to my size, I'm not going to just get under the squat rack and try and crush 300 pounds on my first day. Right. And if I do that, I'm probably going to get injured. Right. So similarly, if people don't have any experience in working with transcendent states and psychedelic states, then I wouldn't start with a level three protocol straight away. So if we look at hierarchy, then hierarchy essentially also just means sacred order. And if we think about the, the medicines that are the easiest to usually navigate from the experience side, as well as the facilitation side, they're all pretty safe. The likelihood of success is pretty high and the likelihood of something really squirrely happening or a bad trip is fairly low. Then the level one medicines, the first entry of the hierarchy, low dose LSD, because high dose LSD is a completely different beast. Low dose LSD, psilocybin, MDMA, ketamine, cannabis. Mm -hmm. Level two And these are medicines that have been held in hundreds, if not thousands of years of tradition and require a degree of training to be able to expertly facilitate. So as opposed to being a sitter, level two really require excellence in the facilitation. And these are medicines like ayahuasca, San Pedro cactus, and peyote. And the level three medicines have more risk, both physiologically and psychologically. And this is Ibogaine or Iboga, Iboga being the whole plant, Ibogaine being the primary extract, and DMT. DMT is not so much dangerous physically, but it can be psychologically if people aren't ready to have that size of an experience. It's fairly short, but it's really big, and nothing is going to encourage the ego to die as much as DMT compared to all the other medicines or in comparison to something like a near-death experience, right? There's a huge experience of the ego being transported or catapulted out of the body. And some people, if they go straight to DMT because it's getting so much press now, they can have a really big freak out, have a bad trip, And that can leave a psychological scar or even a tear in the psychic field, if we want to describe it that way, that needs a fair bit of time to repair. So if we just look at each of those medicines, there's five in level one, three in level two, and two in level three. There's escalating requirement really to know what people are getting into and to have some training. So if people ask me, because I get this question fairly often, I want to have an experience, where should I start? And I typically say, well, do you have any kind of meditation practice? Have you ever floated? And have you ever been in a really scary situation and how did you deal with it? And if they say, no, I don't have a meditation experience. I've never been in a float tank. And yeah, I freaked out once when you know X, Y, or Z happened. 
then that's the place to start actually at ground zero start with some kind of meditation practice get in the float tank a half a dozen times because that's going to start to allow some of the subconscious material to come up to the surface and see how you work with scary situations how do you self-regulate do you have a breathwork practice are you willing to go into the like joseph campbell said in the cave that we fear lies the treasure that we seek are you willing to go into the cave and what do you think is going to happen when you get in there when it's scary lonely dark and you feel like you're all alone how are you going to deal with that because that's what could happen it's not what always happens but it's what could happen so people need to prepare and get like training under their belt so start with ground zero and then once that's solidified and people have prepared and they, they feel ready and they've kind of been assessed for readiness and it seems like that's the case, great, then explore level one. And ideally do that with a sitter at minimum, I, but even better than that would be a trained facilitator. Explore level one, get some of those under your belt and then consider level two and then consider and, level three. And if, say... For some of these, uh, my, these listeners that are listening to this podcast, they've already done their homework and they've done the phase zero and they're ready to embark on the phase one. Um, what can they expect and what kind of prerequisites should they have completed? Obviously, phase zero in, involves some prerequisites, but in terms of like getting their mind right and prepared, you know, what are some prerequisites before embarking on a phase one tier medicine? Mm-hmm. So everything in phase one is fairly safe okay. physiologically. There's no LD50 for LSD, psilocybin, cannabis. There is an LD50 for uh, like a lethal dose for ketamine, but you'd have to take a truckload. And if you took too much MDMA, there can be cardiovascular risks like because it bumps your systolic blood pressure and heart rate about 25 points or so per session. So people have to know some of those risks and potential contraindications. And then also what is the indication that they're using for like, what are they going for? Are they going for healing? And if they're going for healing, is it one of the big five depression, anxiety, PTSD, addiction, or pain? And if they're not going for healing, are they going for optimization? Those are the typical two doorways into medicine work. And when then you say optimization, uh, can you clarify what, what that entails? Yeah. So optimization is essentially helping the worried well go from good to great. Because we all have our own neuroses. We're all, <laughs> we're all walking around with our own ego constructs and ego defenses and the wounds that we carry around, particularly because we just live in a chaotic, crazy culture right now. And it's such a fast-paced entry into life particularly now you and i we were at least raised prior to widespread cell phone use and prior to the internet so we actually had a lot of time in nature we had a lot of time to be children but the current generation and the coming generations they're like straight into adulthood pretty quick with as much access to crazy amounts of information of all sorts on the internet that anybody can get at the flick of a button. So it kind of depends on if there's the suspicion that, yeah, maybe I don't have like crushing depression or major OCD or generalized anxiety or phobias or X, Y, and Z issue that I'm trying to heal, but 
there is also the opportunity because we recognize that we've been working with psychedelic and transcendental states since we were banging rocks together thousands of years ago. And transcendence is one of our core primary needs. If we look at the primary energy systems in the body, the Vedic medicine would describe those as chakras or energy centers themselves or wheel. Chakra just means wheel of life or like a spinning wheel. And if we look at these different primary centers, these all have primary drives. The drive to be safe and to have safety and also to serve. The drive to create. The drive to exert ourselves and our authentic expression in the world, the desire to love, etc. And in this desire to transcend or to have transcendental states. This is some of Jamie Wheel and Stephen Kotler's work in uh, chasing fire or uh, stealing fire and the rise of Superman and check sent me high's work in flow states. We are driven and organized around these transformational experiences and we're not the only mammals that do that, by the way, either. So it's, it's not only a human drive and, and need, it's also a recognition that if we don't express that need, then it's going to come out in some distorted way. And Joseph mm-hmm. Chilton Pierce talked about this in Biology of Transcendence. He's like, if we're not going for transcendence, at least occasionally, then that repressed drive can come out as violence. It's like, wow, okay, that's a phenomenal picture and a lens to look at not only are these benefits and we have privilege to work with these medicines because many of our ancestors didn't have the opportunity to but it's also part of our dna it's a part of our blueprint and so it's a healthy expression of a whole human to get out of the usual ego constructs that's usually around limitation and scarcity and safety because the ego goes for safety it's also about being able to step outside of that and get some freedom to drop the ego at the door and then see what wants to happen. What's happening subconsciously that I'm not in touch with or super consciously that I'm not in touch with. So these different entry points, whether it's healing or optimization might point in the direction of one or more of a first level medicine to work with. And so uh, that's always my next question. So it, it can be okay to stay in that, first tier and play with some of these different medicines because they're even though they're in the same tier they can give you a different experience and then once you've kind of mastered those medicines and feel comfortable then it would be advisable and acceptable to seek out and go into the phase two tier yeah that's been my experience if we want to just play it safe and that being said I, I medically directed an Ibogaine center in Mexico for a year, a number of years ago. And we would have people come in as daily heroin users or daily opioid users because they were addicted to pain medications and they had never had a psychedelic experience and go straight to Ibogaine. They were this at the is, end of their rope. Right. right. So this is a different scenario in which we. That's a different scenario. But just to give that example, like there are. In an emergency situation, it might be advisable for a person to go straight to a level three medicine like Ibogaine if they've tried everything else for addiction recovery, they keep relapsing, and this is their last ditch effort. And in a very specific scenario, it might be advisable. 
to jump levels. Right, to upgrade. Generally, for the average person to play it safe and to do it well, this hierarchy works for the vast majority of people. And you were making a reference, which is a great point, regarding opioid dependence in the state we're in in, in the U.S. with the prevalence of opioid abuse and the number of people that have addiction to these medicines. And do psychedelics, I know you were referencing Ibogaine as a medicine that can be used to heal people that have addiction problems, but the tiers below, will can they be utilized in a healing sense for people who have drug dependency and other addiction issues? A hundred percent. Yeah. Psilocybin has some really good early data for nicotine dependence. Mm-hmm. And, and nicotine dependence is a hard one to kick. And some of the early trials, these are small trials, but are as good as 80% cure rate a year after. Right. And that's with a lot of preparation and a couple of experiences working. That model, I think, was stacked with CBT. And to be able to unravel that, that's pretty impressive. Ayahuasca has tons of really good data for decades for drug and alcohol dependency. And there's a place called uh, Takiwasi that I think was either f- started or initially founded or supported by Dennis McKenna, one of the heavies in the field. And they've been doing good work for a long time. And I think globally, Aya is used in many centers, specifically and primarily for addiction recovery support. So there are level one medicines and level two medicines. I'm just trying to think of like anything else in level one that's primarily... LSD has some benefit and some re- reported usage for addiction recovery treatment. However, it's just not being studied much anymore because it just got such a bad rap. Right. And peyote has supported many people, particularly in the Native American communities, for addiction recovery. But the, the, the two primary ones outside of level three would be psilocybin in level one and ayahuasca in level two. And it's really interesting that all these medicines that we're discussing have been around, except for some of the synthetic ones, which are ketamine and MDMA. But all the other ones are have been around for, for generations and generations. And they've been used in the indigenous cultures for many years for healing. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah, the, the synthetics K, LSD, MDMA, all relatively new in the last... 80 years. These were all found and like developed in between the 30s and the 50s and then found to be really beneficial for their little niche. So prior to 1900s, yeah, all the other medicines <laughs> have been used culturally for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And psilocybin goes back up to a million years in the <laughs> fossil record. That's amazing. And was probably something, if you looked at the stoned ape theory or hypothesis by Dennis and Terrence McKenna, maybe psilocybin was even part of what helped us evolve (laughs) Yeah, about 200,000 years ago from Homo erectus into Homo sapiens. We had this like massive increase in brain volume. Well, if you experience, if you just read that, you're like, oh, yeah, maybe so. (laughs) But if you experience psilocybin, you're like, oh, wow, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Because <laughs> what it's doing to me in the felt experience feels like it's expanding my consciousness. And oh, by the way, yes, it also stimulates synaptogenesis 
and BDNF and may even support new neuronal growth, not just improved synaptic connection, but actually the growth of new neurons. Right, and hence neuroplasticity, right? So mm -hmm. uh, we've seen those kind of studies with psilocybin as of late, but I'm sure there are other medicines such as ayahuasca that also has some neuroplasticity and, and changes in brain chemistry, as you just described. Well, this is just fascinating. And, you know, the other, there are, I mean, some of these medicines, you know, are harmless. And I think there was some study that showed and had a comparison between common substances that are used on a daily basis compared to medicines such as psilocybin, LSD, MDMA. And they were all like in this, in this bar graph. And if you look at the graph, if I'm not mistaken, I can't remember the study, but I'm sure you know the study, but it showed that psilocybin was at the very bottom of the list in terms of it, the risk, fat, risk that it can cause harm to the person who's taking the medicine and the people that are around that person, right? So, Yeah, yeah. That's from the Global Drug Survey. I think it was 2017. And so that, that's a cool study too because that's in the field. Yeah. Right. So we know in, we know in the laboratory there's no LD50. You take too much psilocybin, you're going to puke it out or poop it out or get it out. And so it's the safest one or one of the safest ones in the lab. And then in the field, it actually is the least uh, presented to the emergency department with people going through a bad trip. Even less than like half the number present to the ER on a bad trip with psilocybin than with cannabis. Well, that was notable for me. Like, and it makes sense too, because now the cannabis compared to 10 years ago is so heavy. It's so strong. And I think some people are way overshooting the mark and then have a freak out and they go to the ER and like, Oh yeah, you just smoked way too much. You took like way the, the what happening more commonly today is people are taking way too much of an edible. And then it's on board and it's kind of like stuck there for a while. <laughs> and it can be like freaky to try and like wrestle with your consciousness. It's going through a bad trip for like four hours. And same thing with LSD, which is why if, you, if people take too much LSD, it's a totally different beast. And the synthetics don't have the natural safeguards built in. Because usually if you take a natural medicine in too high of a dose and it's a toxic dose, again, you puke it out, poop it out, get it out. But if you take a synthetic too much, then you're going to have to ride it out because the natural mechanisms aren't typically built in. You can't just puke LSD back out. It's like on board, and now you've got eight to ten hours. Of a bad trip, I know. Of a bad trip. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you're, with your transformational medicine that you're doing, I mean, and the utilization of your protocol along with some of these medicines, what kind of transformations are you seeing in individuals uh, that are going through these processes that you've put in place? Well, it's nothing short of phenomenal because people are waking up into an experience of life that they didn't know possible. Yeah. It's kind of like, uh, you know, if, if I, if I'm raised in the Pacific Northwest in the winter and I just, I have that as my norm. I lived there for five years, so I, I, I don't know. I just kind of like <laughs> toggled to that. It's going to be dark and dreary and cold and rainy for eight months. That's two-thirds of the calendar. is going to be fairly not sunny. 
if that's my only reference point, because that's where I've grown up and that's all I know, then okay, I can deal with it. But now if I go and I travel down to Costa Rica, where it's pretty much sunny and beautiful all the time, and maybe it varies 30 minutes between winter and summer daylight hours, and it's warm and I can get out in the sun and like my vitamin D levels just shoot through the roof. Now I have a different experience with life and sunshine and maybe happiness because seasonal affective disorder is a thing. So it really kind of depends on what our experience of the norm is. If I, if my usual operating system is one of disempowerment, victimization, blame, judgment, criticism, internally and outwardly, right? Because the most critical people to others are the most critical of themselves. We just do that. That's what the ego does. And if that's all I know, then it's hard to fathom what it's going to be like to be content and peaceful and happy. And in relationship, if I don't know what it's like to have a safe, secure experience in a relationship, and I'm, and I'm working around these, these different fear programs around abandonment and rejection and inconsistency and potentially intimacy not being a reliable situation because I wasn't modeled that way. And then I have this all of a sudden, like, give any of those examples. And then you put people through a fairly efficient, and the, and the time course is different for everybody. But a fairly efficient process, say a three-month or so process, to work through those deep layers, to work through those programs and belief structures, get a sense of what the operating system used to be like, and now in reflection of uh, a process that I can actually engage from a witness perspective, look at my thinking. And then choose how I want to move forward. Choose the, I, the, the thoughts and the programs and the, the, the now clear internal narrative that I'm wanting to anchor my life around. Now I might be able to more readily experience safety and security in relationship. More self-love and self-worth and therefore peace and contentment internally and therefore also more self-love and self-worth that I can see in others and recognize that we're all connected here and everybody's going through their own kind of thing together. And if I've just taken the lens of this kind of like gray haze of life off and yeah, maybe in the early stages, there might be a rosy hue and a, a bit of a psychedelic afterglow. I mean, this is where the integration really helps to solidify that peak experience and make it workable. But there's a really fundamental shift in a person's life that happens at that point. That's why I consistently for myself and have seen this with countless friends, family, and clients that there's life before medicine and life after medicine. Mm -hmm. And now we also know that not only can I experience life in a different way and, and potentially in a way that's more beautiful and gorgeous and abundant and inspired and connected than I thought possible. I also now know that I have a tool to be able to continue to utilize throughout the rest of my life mm -hmm. 
that can that, that can continue to help me orient towards truth. The medicines won't save us, but what they do is help us orient towards truth. And if I can continue to do that, then now I'm, I'm re-referencing my experience internally, and I know I've got an ally that continues that can continue to support my evolution. So huge and so beautiful. I appreciate you saying that. Also, we want, I want to really discuss your efforts. I mean, you've been instrumental in some of the changes with decriminalization that we've seen over the last few months. Do you anticipate any other areas, states maybe even, that are going to wipe, widespread decriminalize these psychedelic yeah. medicines? A hundred percent. So what we saw happen last year here in Denver is we decriminalized psilocybin. And then like two weeks later, or maybe a month later, Oakland went and decriminalized all natural medicines, which was great. Right. So their kind of platform is decriminalized nature. And then Chicago, a handful of months, went with the same decrim nature piece. And Chicago is a huge municipality. Now, right. Right. So that was that was about as big as, as Denver going for psilocybin. Because Oakland wasn't a populist vote. It was a vote at the city council. So you only had like 12 people sitting around a table saying, oh, yeah, this would be good. Let's go for that, which is great. And I always get curious, like, what do the people want? And so when Chicago went decrim nature, it's like, oh, geez, that's huge. And now there are something like 120 municipalities that have votes coming on the ballot in the next year or so. 120. Wow. Yeah municipalities nationwide wow. and it might just be for psilocybin or it could be all the way up to decrim nature could be small little places like port townsend went and you know port townsend's pretty progressive and fairly small and you're like oh yeah i could see that berkeley went and you're like oh yeah i could see that but no there are other really big municipalities and cities going for it as well and oregon has a has a measure 2020 not just to decrim but to actually legalize therapeutic use of psilocybin. And that's going for statewide ballot vote. And that's this uh, year? Uh, that's in Oregon. Right. This, this year, that's when the vote. This year, yeah, yeah. Vote. Yeah. Wow. yeah. I know. So I think that's we're going to see a lot of things happen in fairly short order. And, and it's cool, too, because be Oregon is essentially saying, we want to do what California did for medical cannabis in the 90s. We want to do that for psilocybin right now. We don't want to wait for the feds. We want to go ahead and see if the state's willing to support us and then see what the feds have to say because it's already going into phase three trials. And there it's the OPS, OPS, Oregon Psilocybin Society initiative for 2020. And it's probably the best well thought out legal initiative I've seen up to this point. And it's amazing to me to see how there's so many municipalities in so many areas that have already initiated the decriminalization. And this is before the feds have actually completed their studies with psilocybin and MDMA. And they haven't even started on researching in some of the medicines that have been decriminalized in Denver and California. This is just incredible. And it just shows the power of these medicines and how much healing capacity they have for people. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're going to see amazing things happen in this arena in the next handful of years, particularly in the next decade. And it's such an exciting time to be in the field.
Oh, and it sure is needed. Um, I mean, this is right now we're, you know, I'm sure everyone can attest to this, but you go around on social media and people are just trolling and, and just displaying so much fear and hate. And it's just, oh my gosh. It's, and you just have these people, if they go on a, a good psychedelic trip, all that it just goes away. I mean, it's just yeah. so funny how quickly this works. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Well, Dan, I, um, we're running close to being out of time, but I really want to thank you for taking the opportunity to talk with me about your experiences and what you're doing on the forefront of psychedelic medicine. And I really just want to thank you with all your efforts that you've made in, in over the last six months. And, and that's been your hard work along with a lot of other people that we will definitely see these medicines be on the forefront for prescriptions that will be written by physicians. And I can't wait for that to actually happen. I know. Yeah. A hundred percent. I think it's uh it's a great time to be in the field. Great that you're uh, one of many who are getting good information out there to the masses. And this is how it's also starting as a grassroots campaign because most of the funding, if not all of the funding for the psychedelics that we've just spoken about is private funding. It's right. not coming from the government. So this is very much a grassroots movement because of the opportunity to share information as widely as we have been. Right. And if, yeah. if people want to reach out to you and, you know, and talk to you and discuss with you about information regarding psychedelics or even want to enroll in, in your protocols uh, for healing, how can they get a hold of you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, best way is a few different websites, uh, drdanengel.com, D-R-D-A-N-E-N-G-L-E, fullspectrummedicine.com is uh, our education advocacy platform. Uh, I'm building a new nonprofit, uh, launching a new clinic in Austin this summer called Kuya. Uh, that's going to be one of the premier transformational medicine centers. We're going to go like doors open around August. There's some good information about traumatic brain injury recovery uh, in the concussion repair manual if people have experienced any of that stuff. We're also going to be doing a transformational medicine masterclass launching later this year um, that you and I are going to be speaking about in a little bit so yeah i'm looking yeah there's to that. a lot a lot moving a lot shaking so exciting so exciting well dan thanks so much for being on this podcast it was great talking with you and i look forward to personally working with you in the future yeah likewise diva i look forward to it too man <laughs>